and welcome to the Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with and for global education leaders. Our aim, to introduce you to global changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help or not. I'm your host, education reporter Jenny Anderson. In our first series, we're looking at how to reopen education settings in the wake of COVID-19. Our focus will be on how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Michael Sorrell, president of Paul Quinn College, a faith-based liberal arts, historically black college in Texas. Paul Quinn College is not a well-known institution. I grew up in the U.S. and cover education and had not heard of it until recently. But the story of Michael's 13-year presidency is a story of transformation and entrepreneurialism. Surely you can't think that you have only the best and the brightest if all of them look the same. He's rejected the standard molds of higher education to focus on the needs of his students, 80 to 85% of whom are on Pell Grants, and about 70% of whom cannot rely on any family help to pay for college. When he took over in 2007, the college was on the brink of financial collapse. Today, Paul Quinn College is the first urban work college in the U.S. Students get jobs with area companies, helping them to pay for tuition and gain employment experience. Michael converted the football field into a farm and built a movement, the Quinnite Nation, focused on the single goal of eradicating poverty. The college's ethos is we over me, and solving the problems of the community it serves. Paul Quinn graduates used to leave campus with $40,000 of debt. Now that's less than 15, he's hoping to get it to 10. The US national average, 30,000. Today we're talking about racism in America, opening after COVID, and Paul Quinn's unique model. Michael, it's good to speak to you again. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's good to see you again. Michael, we spoke a few weeks ago about your decision not to open Paul Quinn this fall because you did not feel you could keep your students safe. The pandemic was not yet under control and it was infecting and killing black people at three to four times the rate of white people. A few weeks later, we're still in the throes of the pandemic. Our economies are a mess and the streets and cities and communities in the US and beyond are filled with people protesting the murder of George Floyd and so many other people of color who have died at the hands of the police. What have the past two weeks been like for you personally, as well as president of Paul Quinn College? Well, a couple of things. One, we still haven't finalized what we're going to do in the fall. Um, we have set up a set of parameters by which we think it's pretty clear what we'll wind up doing. Um, we, you know, we have said if there's no widespread testing, if there's no vaccine, that it's just very difficult to do this. Also, there's a desire not to treat our students like guinea pigs right now, right? Which is what anyone that is bringing their students back to campus effectively is doing. We just don't, we don't like the idea of doing that. We don't think it's right. Um, now, in, in terms of what have the past few weeks been like for me, I mean, frankly, um, they're not that different. I have been a black male my entire life. I have understood the world in which I reside. I never had the luxury of pretending that the world we live in isn't the world that we live in. Um, I have been harassed. 
I've been harassed by police. I've been harassed by people I've gone to school with. I've been called names. Um, I have been, you know, profiled. I've been arrested for no good reason. You know, I mean, I, I am thankful that we're in a moment of reflection. But my question would be, what took so long? How many people, how many people had to die before people realized that the truth was the truth? So why do you think it happened now? If you think it's happening, by the way. Sure. Well, I think part of what we're seeing now is that people are open to these observations because life has slowed down considerably. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. There aren't as many things competing for one's attention. And so as people look up and they see this on the evening news and they see the crowds, they see the protests. Um, you're forced to really look at things from a different perspective for the first time. And listen, I, I don't know what made people wake up, right? To be honest with you, I'm not sure they're entirely awake. Certainly, I don't think they're woke, right? Like, so I think what you're seeing is. A, a moment where people are saying, this is wrong. But acknowledging that it's wrong is a long trip from making it right. Now, it's, it's a necessary step, but I, for one, am not sitting here thinking, whew, we have finally made it, All right? Come on. What is your message to students right now? Well, you know, it's interesting. When the protests began, I knew we had protest students who were protesting. I knew we had alums who were protesting. So I reached out to them, you know, and talked to them, found out how were your experiences. Then, you know, I wrote a letter to them via social media and just said, hey, listen, be careful, be safe. Absolutely do what you're doing. Stand up, speak up, show up. Make your voices heard, but have a plan and be careful because we're still in the midst of a global pandemic. Right. So I, I am terrified for what these protests could mean for people's health. I am, I am so proud of them. I just want them to be safe and to come back to us so that we can affect permanent and sustainable change. Are other educators reaching out to you right now? asking what they can do, should do, have done wrong. What are you hearing? Oh, this is the moment for every non-black person to reach out and touch someone black. Is that yeah. annoying? I don't, I mean, it's not comforting, right? I mean, it's not like people didn't know, right? Like, it's not, I mean, maybe you didn't know to the extent, but... I can't make you feel better for what you missed, right? I can't make you feel better for what it is that is stirring inside of you. That's not my job, okay? Uh, I, I went to predominantly white schools the majority of my life, and this is no different than when you're in class and there's some issue that would come up that talked about race, and your classmates would all turn to you and be like, 
please tell us the African-American experience, right? Like, I mean, no, I'm not part of what you pay for, okay? That's not, I'm not going to do that, okay? Uh, what I am going to do is tell you to keep working. Read. Invest your time beyond this moment in learning about someone else's experience. Because you know what? I've learned all about yours. Right? Like I've spent years in school where history was taught from your perspective. You know, I went to Oberlin for undergrad. And Oberlin was a place where people really worked to understand cultural differences. Right? Like, I mean, that was, people were sincere. Whatever was imperfect, you knew that there were people who were really present. Then I went to Duke in a graduate program where I was the only black male in my class and there was one other black woman. And so, you know, you know, I don't really get caught up in what race my friends are. You know, I'm like, if you're good people, you're good people. You can be my kind and not be my color. So, you know, we were doing these things socially. And then there was an event that my fraternity was throwing, my undergrad chapter of my fraternity was throwing. And I was going and I invited my white classmates to go. Now, mind you, for weeks, I've been going to all of their things. And none of them were comfortable coming to mine. And I was sort of like, you know, I got it. Right, I got it. We'll be cool, but we won't be that cool. It takes a different type of self-confidence to walk in someone else's community. And... I have no fear walking in anyone's community, in part because I respect everyone's community. And I'm not here to appropriate it. I'm not here to tell you I understand your experience. I'm just here because I respect you enough to show up, right? And whatever else happens after that, great. I think it's interesting for all the people who have reached out and felt guilty and you know, been concerned about what they could do not one of them have written a check to the college. Not one. When, and, so you, you actually said in your South by Southwest talk, you got some advice from someone, someone of means comes by, ask them for something. Have you been asking? Well, no, no, and they're no, not like, doing it. I'm, I'm going to get to the ask. Right now, I just want to see what your internal mechanisms move you to do. Do you move past, I am sorry? Because... Sorry could take many different forms. One of which is you could keep saying I'm sorry every year for 10 years in the form of a scholarship to help support a student who, you know, races, laws, and everything else has, have disadvantaged. So let's see what your entrepreneurial thoughts and actions around the topic of race lead you to do. I don't, I mean... We're, we're not even in the first quarter, as far as I'm concerned. We're in the warm-ups. So pardon me for not being willing to give people a brownie because they all of a sudden have raised their head and said, oh, this is really bad, and I want to do something. Let me call the three black people I know and emote, right? Like, I'm not giving you a pass for that, right? Like, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not patting you on the back for doing what you're supposed to do, okay? You want to credit it, you want a claim, do something 
a claim worthy. So just step back a little bit, and I'm afraid that the answer to this could be so long and profound, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Where is higher education failing black students? Oh, I think you have to expand your question and say, okay. where is higher education failing all its students? Higher education is built on elitism. Okay, so the idea is never really about access as it is about you come to my school, your life will be better than if you go to someone else's school, right? That, cause that's sort of the, the nature of it, right? I mean, that's the way our standardized tests work. That's the way the admissions process works. Because if you apply to a school and 1% of the applicants get in, you are saying to people, hey, 1%, you are better than 99% of the people who couldn't get in. Well, if you are implying that, right, tacitly implying that, then what you're saying to those people and what they are reinforced to believe each step along the way is you're better. You're better. You're better than the people who couldn't get in. You're better than the people who couldn't get in that don't look like you. If you're a majority culture, then you're going to look there and say, well, I must be better than the overwhelming majority of these other people because they aren't here. So whether it was meant to do that or not, that's what it does. So the question for higher education is, what are you going to do about it, right? What are you going to do to address the inequities that you help create and foster? How are they meant to fix the problem of hundreds of thousands of people applying to them? Well, the first thing is you have to take accountability of the system that you've established, right? What is it about your application process that you are really trying to accomplish? If you're trying to enroll the best and the brightest, then go find the best and the brightest. Surely you can't think that you have only the best and the brightest if all of them look the same. Right. Right? Like, that's not the best and the brightest. You've got a skewed system, right? So, so you've got you to figure that out. Um, can, I put some data, can I put some data behind that? Because I have this right here. The Ivy League Plus, which is the Ivy League Plus Stanford, MIT, Duke, and University of Chicago, more than two-thirds of the students are from rich households and fewer than 4% are from poor households. So is, is that what we're getting at? That's what we're getting at, right? And you can drill down to those numbers even more so. Right? I mean, do you know the single greatest predictor of whether or not you get into an Ivy League Plus school is whether your parents went to an Ivy League Plus school? All right? So that, that has nothing to do with whether you got the best or the brightest. As an educational system, all of it, right, from K all the way through, we're going to have to address the fact that every single policymaker that is responsible for the disparities in our community, that is responsible for the mess that we are experiencing right now, they all went to college. They all came through our doors. We produced them. I mean, every member in Congress responsible for the, this horrific partisan environment, they all went to college. I'm always fascinated by public institutions, state-funded institutions that are complaining 
about the fact that their funding has been cut. And I was like, the majority of the legislature went to your schools. What did you do that your graduates cut your funding? Because I promise you, if I had a legislature full of Paul Quinn graduates, my funding wouldn't be getting cut. You'd have a nice endowment. Right, right. I want our listeners to hear about Paul Quinn College because it's pretty unique. I want you to start with the best leadership advice you ever got. So the best leadership advice I've ever gotten came from a woman by the name of Evelyn Dickinson. Dickinson and she gave it to me when I was a young college president. I became a college president. I had just turned 40. And I took this job at an institution that was failing. And I was stressed out. Every day, like we used to have the pictures of all the presidents that would hang on a wall. And every day on my way home, I would pass these pictures and I would look at them. And, you know, it was a motley looking crew because the pictures back from the 1800s weren't exactly Kodak quality, right? So I'm passing by and I, I was living with the pressure that if I failed, my legacy would be closing the school. And so it was stressful. I would go home every day and I would take out a bag of chocolate chip cookies and I would sit on the couch and I would try and eat myself into, you know, some kind of peace of mind. And I was just stressed. And one day on campus, I got into a yelling match with one of my male students and we're going at it. I mean, it was not my most presidential moment, you know, and we're cussing at each other and blah, blah, blah. And we're cussing each other out as we go all the way up the stairs to my office. And we get to my office, he sits down in a chair and he breaks down in tears. And listen, I grew up in the big city of Chicago and you didn't fight and then break down in tears in Chicago. That just wasn't really how it worked. And so I'm looking at him and I was too far gone. Right? I did not get, I hadn't, I wasn't married. I didn't have my children, which everyone swears has made me far more gentle than I was then, right? So he got sort of just the raw, overly masculine version of myself. And I'm just like, how are you going to sit here, cuss me out one minute and cry, right? Why are you crying, okay? And so my staff member, Ms. Dickinson, comforts the young man and, you know, leads him out of the office and she comes back in. You know, I'm sort of like, what's up with this guy, right? She looks at me over her glasses, shakes her head. She says, baby, I met your mother and your mother was tough on you. But your mother loved you. You have never spent one second of your life wondering if you were loved. She said, in fact, you bear all the, the signs of someone who's been overloved. And I was sort of like, did you just, did you just talk about my mom, right? Like, did you just, was that some backhanded smack? Are you calling me spoiled? Like, uh, there's something here. And so she said, let me ask you a question. If you spent your whole life only knowing tough, would you ever recognize love? She said, I know you love our students. I know you love this staff and I know you love this school, but you are hard on us. And if you want us to trust you, if you want us to follow you, you're going to have to learn how to lead with love. 
And it was the single most amazing piece of advice because effectively what she was saying to me is people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And you have to let people in. You've got to be willing to be yourself. You have to be willing to be emotional, to be authentic and, and to be gentle. And that advice, quite frankly, saved my presidency. One could argue that because it saved my presidency at a time when we are our most fragile institution, it saved the institution. Um, it has made me a better man. It's made me a better husband. It's made me a better father. It's made me a better friend. And that single piece of advice, lead with love, is the foundation of everything that we do at Paul Quinn. I mean, when you look at the decisions we make, I mean, even to the point where we fight about whether or not you invite students back to live on campus next fall. That is from a foundation of love. It's saying, we can't keep you safe. And we don't think gambling with your life is, is the right thing to do. Because we see you and we love you and we're not afraid to act as if we love you. So that is the single best advice I've ever been given as a leader. You say that Paul Quinn is a movement and not a college. How does that fit in with that lead with love? And why is it a movement and not a college? Well, it's a movement because we are obsessed about fighting for our cause. And our cause is the long-term eradication of intergenerational poverty, right? We just, every problem that our students are being burdened by, the root cause is poverty. And so we can sit here and we can talk about, oh, we have this amazing book collection and we can talk about the, the great professors and we can talk about all of that. But at the end of the day, we're fighting for something bigger than the perpetuation of ourselves as an institution. We're fighting for the salvation of our students. And that's just a bigger cause. I mean, that, and that's something, I mean, I would tell you, look, there are lots of schools that can trot out far more decorated histories than ours. There are lots of schools that can trot out bigger endowments and fancier buildings and all of that. But there are no group of schools that can point to themselves and say that they are on the front lines of the fights that we are on and are consistently willing to challenge the notion that self-preservation is what institutions should be obsessed by. We are obsessed by caring for people who don't have enough people in power to care for them, people who have been told that, oh, your fight's not my fight. We just think that we can do better and we should do better. And the idea that institutions should turn themselves outward and fight the fights that their constituencies need fighting is one that is resonating with people around the world. And we're proud of that. And how have you, to allow yourselves to look outward, you've actually built the university to respond to the needs of your students. So you are in a work college, an urban work college, the first in the United States. What does that mean? So sure. So it turns out that almost 80% of all college students are working. And many work more than 20 hours per week. 
So we looked at it and we said, well, wait a minute. If everyone's working and they're having to find their own job and the jobs don't exist in the context of the institution and, you know, 80, 90% of employers wish that students would cut their entry level hires would come to them with real world work experience and 50, 60% of college students wish that their colleges had helped them gain real world work experience. If that is what everyone's experience is, then maybe there's a role here for institutions. And so what we said was, let's go create a college that incorporates work at internships that help people get jobs into the normal academic experience. And that's what we've done. And so if you come to Paul Quinn, if you're a residential student, you get a job and you work 15, 16 hours a week. And that job helps you pay for your tuition or pay for your education. And you get real world work experience. And what it basically adds up to is that Paul Quinn College, when you graduate, you have subject matter expertise, which is what you majored in. You have four years of experiential expertise, which is the internship and the internship experiences that you've had. And now starting this year, because people now, the incoming class is gonna pick up a digital and industry recognized credential, you'll graduate with four to eight digital credentials, which will help you uh, be even more employable. So it's just a simple acknowledgement of what it is that people need today. Not what they needed 20 years ago, not what they needed 50 years ago or 100 years ago. What do they need today? And we are nimble enough to be able to meet those needs. How does reality-based education fit into that? What does that mean? So that's another acknowledgement that why don't we teach people to solve the problems in their lives? You know, why don't we just acknowledge what it is that people need? Again, you know, I mean, the interesting part about this, and, and people told us, oh, it's so revolutionary. It's only revolutionary because it's simple. We asked business, what is it that you need students and your graduates and new hires to be able to do in order to be successful? They said they need to be able to write well, they need to be able to speak well and persuasively, they need to be able to work effectively in teams, and they need to be digitally competent. So reality-based education is an acknowledgement of that. So we say every course requires you to write papers. Every course requires you to get up and make public speeches. Every course requires you to solve real-world problems in groups. And every course requires you to demonstrate digital mastery. So we are teaching you the real-world skill that you need to be successful. That is what reality-based education is. It's challenge-based learning, it's common sense skills, um, and it's also a way of saying, we see you, we see your life experiences, we think they have value, they have meaning, and you know what, we also think you might be more interested in class if you saw yourself and what you were like. So what would be a real life problem that someone might solve in a class? Well, let's just take the courses I teach. Each year, we solve a big problem. So this past spring, I taught a course on elite level problem solving, and the problem to solve was, how would you pay reparations, right? How would you pay reparations in the current political climate in a way that doesn't result in everyone who helped you get uh, reparations being voted out of office? That's a real world problem that the students were interested in, 
right? Next year, we'll teach about immigration. Um, another year, we tried to solve poverty. Um, another year, we designed our own college. We just, we take the things that students are interested in and we build them into their academic experience. And because we live in an outcomes-oriented world, can you tell us whether it's working? Is this approach getting, giving your students what you think they need, what you think an education is about, and also getting them jobs? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's working exceptionally well. I, I look at, you know, two of my graduates who finished up this year have gone to work at J.P. Morgan Chase. They never would have gone to work at J.P. Morgan Chase if it hadn't been for the internship experience. When I look at the student that we had who um, is working in private equity, 148 years of an institution. He's the only person we've ever had go to work in private equity. He got that job because of the work program. Um, when I look at the fact that when our students compete in hackathons and things of that nature, they win or place very, very highly. I asked Michael to back that up with some data. He offered this. In 2018 and 2019, 70% of Paul Quinn students are employed when they graduate. You had said the last time we spoke, you know, if the physical campus is closed for a longer period of time, you will use that gift of time. Have you thought more about what you want to do with that gift of time? Oh, yeah, I'm out of control, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are in the zone. Our students run the risk of returning whenever they return and looking around and just saying, what the hell? Like, people won't have to ask us what we did during coronation because it will be evident right so we have two new buildings that will be finished by the end of august we are in negotiations right now to add a 2100 person charter school to the campus uh, we are going to be announcing this amazing partnership with minerva to beta test an online platform that we think will be suitable for students from under-resourced communities so one of the issues that students from under-resourced communities have with online learning is they don't feel as if it speaks to them. They don't feel engaged. They feel ignored. We've created a, we've created a partnership with Minerva that we think addresses that issue and puts the students in a way that they realize that people see them, acknowledge them, and are engaged with them. So it's, it's exciting to see what that's going to mean. And the other thing we're doing is we're debuting PQCX, which is our take on revamping all of adult education. And we are we're negotiating to launch a beta test for that with over a thousand people come August. Oh, and by the way, we are in the midst of creating a curriculum for kids to teach black history. So we hope to have that ready to go. Um, and that's for everyone. So I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm just warming up. I know you said in the beginning, and I'm, I'm a little wary to ask you this because I am asking you as a white woman of privilege to help us out, right? And I get that maybe this isn't the moment for that, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because ideally we have global education leaders listening to this podcast and they're thinking, what the hell do I do right now? So give them some advice. The single best advice I can give you is don't get tired. Don't get weak. Don't, don't revert to your standard operating procedure. This didn't get this way in a summer, 
and it's not going to be fixed in the summer. You want to affect change, understand that it's going to have to last. You're going to have to commit to it. And you're going to screw up more times than you get it right. That system that, that is prejudiced, that disenfranchised people wasn't perfected overnight. And the one that is going to destroy it isn't going to be perfected overnight either. Just keep going. Even in the face of, of being discouraged, even in the face of being criticized, just keep going. Then your sincerity will shine through. You'll get it right at some point and everyone's life will be better because you know what? We're not the only ones who are suffering with this, right? We aren't, but we're, we're going to need help to fix it. So I would just say, get ready to sustain the effort. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. All right. You take care. There's so much in this conversation that I'm going to be thinking about for a long time, but I do want to recap a few things. Should higher ed be about keeping people out or letting them in? About self-preservation or serving the needs of the people in its community? If you're white and wondering what to do, don't just reach out to the black people you know in a moat, do something. Invest your time beyond this moment in learning about other people's experiences. Keep going. And also that gem of advice, lead with love. Thanks for listening and see you next time. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.